This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And this week we have an interview with Bruce Schumacher, who's from the Forest Service, the U.S. Forest Service specifically, and he's a paleontologist, so he has a lot to say about some of the cool dinosaur tracks in Colorado. We have Dinosaur of the Day Displetosaurus. Not as much news, maybe. At least it won't take as long. (laughs) And as always, we want to thank our Patreon supporters, and this week, we want to especially thank our patrons at the Stegosaurus level. Whoop, whoop. Because now all of our Patreon levels have actual fun dinosaur names. And specifically, we want to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, and the Georges family. And if you're wondering what the other Patreon levels are now, $5, like I said, Stegosaurus, $10 Triceratops, and $20 is T-Rex. So if you're interested in joining our community on Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash I know Dino. And now on to our news. First up, we have two new papers about Lesotosaurus, and that's a velociraptor-sized early Ornithischian, and it's been synonymized with Stormbergia danger shokai. What a name. Yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about it anymore because now it's just Lesotosaurus. And that's because they were both from the very early Jurassic in Lesotho in South Africa, and they did some more investigation into the part of the body that isn't the head. So a lot of people were looking at the heads, but not so much the rest of the body. And they found out there wasn't really much of a difference. So one's probably just a juvenile or something, or just had some other kind of developmental changes, not really a whole different species. And the other paper about Lesothosaurus was a recent discovery of a Lesothosaurus jaw, And they micro CT scanned the whole jaw and then they digitally modeled the jaw and teeth and they looked at patterns in the teeth to figure out what its likely diet was. So their first clue was that it appeared to have staggered tooth replacement and that means that rather than the whole dental battery getting replaced at once, it looked like one tooth at a time was getting replaced. And then also the teeth had relatively little wear. And both of those elements add up to the fact that it probably didn't eat just plants. And if it did, it was probably eating, you know, relatively softer plants. So they think it was probably eating fungus and possibly young shoots of plants. And that it was likely a facultative omnivore, which means that basically it ate whatever was around. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, it lived in an area with frequent droughts. So it had to just 
whatever was laying around if it's a fungus couldn't afford to be picky yeah insects maybe a small dinosaur whatever really small dinosaur i guess maybe more like an egg <laughs> it would just eat whatever it could find and it's kind of fun too in the paper they have a map of lesotho and the entire country of lesotho is on a jurassic and triassic geological formation and the whole border of lesotho is surrounded by all these dinosaurs which is the area called the elliot formation and there's just tons of these lesotho-sauruses all over the place it's pretty cool lesotho is a very small country but has quite a few dinosaurs next up there's a group of preschoolers in Columbus, Ohio, who are helping Ohio State University's Orton Hall Museum raise money for a dinosaur. This is according to NBC4. So the dinosaur is a 25-foot-long cryolophosaurus found in Antarctica by a retired geology professor, David Elliott, and it's nicknamed Elvisaurus. And the museum is trying to crowdfund enough money to get a cast. So they're trying to raise $80,000. And to help, these preschoolers and their moms started their own fundraiser. So the kids dressed up as dinosaurs when they went on a museum tour. And then they marched around the museum yelling, get your cookies, which I guess confused some people. But the idea was the students and staff could buy dinosaur-shaped cookies, and then the proceeds went to the museum. You can also donate online at buckeyefunder.org osu.edu slash dinosaur or you can look for the preschooler fundraiser on facebook at doe d-o-u-g-h for dino <laughs> that's funny yeah pretty cute in other fundraising news m eugenia l gold is raising money on kickstarter for her kids book about women in paleontology called she found fossils and the book will be in english and in spanish and it's going to cover the history present diversity and up-and-coming paleontologists the book will be available in softcover and as an ebook, and they're raising money to cover the costs of illustration, translation, publication costs. If you pledge $10 or more, you can get a set of three greeting cards with original illustrations. And then if you want uh, everything that they're offering, pledge $100 or more, and that will also help them donate a book to a public library. You get an autograph print and a PDF copy, and then they donate a book. So the goal is to raise $3,500 by March 30th. And as of this recording, they've pledged nearly $10,000 and gotten 192 backers. And they've still got a couple weeks to go. So wow, seems like they're well on their way. They're way past their goal. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they can do with the extra money. Yeah. But I really like the concept of this book. Yeah. I wonder, because it's called She Sound... <laughs> it's called She Found Fossils. I know that's a common tongue twister the she sells she sells by the she seashore <laughs> you might want to work on that <laughs> yeah and that's supposed to be about mary anning i think they're probably doing the same kind of thing but without the whole tongue twister Could element be. it is alliterative yeah. found fossils <laughs> not as alliterative as she sells seashells by the seashore now Nailed you it. got it <laughs> good good you've redeemed yourself <laughs> Moving on, uh, Wild Prehistory is organizing an international meeting called Bringing Paleontology to the People. Speaking of alliteration, it's open to anyone who's interested, and there will be paleontologists ready to answer any questions. So if you're available, the meeting will take place between June 30th to July 3rd of this year in Krasijow, southwest Poland. It's K-R-A-S-I-E-J-O-W. And Wild Prehistory, the European Center of Paleontology, and Jura Park Krasijo are working together on the event. So 
where it's taking place is a small village with a fossil site with late Triassic fossils, including the dinosauromorph Coelosaurus, Archosaurus stagonopolis, and Polynesuchus, and the Archosauromorph Ozimek. So it should be interesting, and I'm glad that they opened it up to anyone who wants to go. And going along with the theme of dinosaur-related events, the 6th Symposium on Dinosaur Eggs and Babies will be in Lisbon, Portugal from October 3rd to 8th this year. It's going to focus on fossil eggs, dinosaur development, and ontogeny. It's hosted every three to four years and has been going since 1999. So pretty cool if you want to learn more about dinosaur eggs. Yeah, we saw a couple little advertisements for that at SVP. Yeah. It looked cool. I think it is, yeah, you said it's in Spain? Portugal. Portugal. Cool. It's a little ways for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next, the Centennial Concert Hall in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada hosted a National Geographic live presentation called Spinosaurus, Lost Creature of the Cretaceous. This was at the end of February. So paleontologist Nizar Ibrahim, who heads the presentation, talks about how he and his team found this partial Spinosaurus. And we've talked about Spinosaurus before, but to recap, this team had to look for a villager in Morocco who had found some Spinosaurus bones. And the first partial Spinosaurus skeleton that had been found was destroyed back in World War II. So all we had, I think, were some drawings. And uh, Ibrahim also talked about what Spinosaurus looked like. It was a crocodile it had a crocodile-like head with a long, narrow jaw, and they talked about the world that it lived in, which was what is now Africa, and it's not as well explored for dinosaur fossils as North America and other parts of the world. So when he and his team found the Spinosaurus, they were able to learn a lot more about the dinosaur and the family that's classified in, such as, for example, we found out that it was semi-aquatic. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful to know. Yeah, big difference, and then you think about how it's depicted in Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> yeah. They have it swimming around in there and stuff. A little bit, yeah. I'm thinking mostly of its big fight scene. Oh, with the T-Rex. Yeah. That apparently gets Jurassic Park fans riled up. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Next, we've talked a little bit about this before, but thanks to Chris for reminding us via Facebook about this channel. There's this channel from the Whitmer Lab at Ohio University that does this series called Dissecting with Emily. They've got this playlist. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They basically look at different dinosaurs and occasionally other animals too. Like one of the first ones, maybe the first ever video they did was on an albatross wing and they had taken everything off of the wing except for the bones and the ligaments and maybe a muscle, but the muscles were really small, I think. And as you bent one bone, the rest of it kind of articulated out. So you could see how the wing naturally kind of automatically folded in and out (laughs) as you just move one part of the arm and it's all articulated together. It was really cool. And then they have other ones where they look at T-Rex skulls and how different bones moved around and even how the Jurassic Park logo, that big T-Rex skull that's on the cover of the original book, has this extra bump in one part of the skull from another piece of the skull that had shifted in just one specimen that the logo is based on. Oh, weird. So it's like a part that should be kind of in the upper palate that shifted up by kind of like the eye socket sort of area. (laughs) But yeah, it broke during fossilization basically. And that's kind of immortalized in this Jurassic Park logo. (laughs) But they have lots of cool little details in their videos. Yeah, it's a good playlist. So we suggest you check it out if you get a chance. Next, the Washington Post reported on the fate of the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of Natural History Triceratops. 
when the museum reopens in 2019, which we're very excited about. We've talked about before, you know, they're they're redoing everything and they've got uh, a T-Rex skeleton coming in and a bunch of other things. So this Triceratops is nicknamed Hatcher and it first went on display in 1905 and it looked really awkward when it went on display. The complete skeleton wasn't found, so curators used bones from 10 different individuals and then put them together as best they could. They had to guess a little bit. So it had too small of a head, its arms were different lengths, and its feet actually came from a hadrosaur. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and the staff drilled holes in the fossils to install metal bars to hold everything together, which isn't great, but probably the best they could do at the time. However, it was the first Triceratops on display, and there were no other Triceratops on display for 20 years, which is hard to believe now when you think about, like, Museum of the Rockies or something like that. There's there's so many. <laughs> and Triceratops is kind of one of the more common dinosaurs that we think of now. Yeah, that's a long time to just have one single dinosaur on display. Mm-hmm. But scientists back then didn't know much about dinosaurs, except that they were extinct. And they saw them as this aberration and more like trophies for museums to attract visitors, not for studying seriously. I don't know. Well, at least according to this article. I don't know about the Washington Post science journalism. (laughs) I don't know. I I thought it's an interesting backstory. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, I guess. I mean, it, it wasn't that widely studied for a while when we first knew about them, right? No, I mean, Barnum Brown, lots of people, colleges were doing collections and there were lots of papers published on them and how they might have evolved and what was related to what. Yeah, that's true. But I guess the level of popularity or something, Yeah, it wasn't the same. It was being used as a spectacle for sure, though. Yeah. So uh, Hatcher again looked pretty awkward. And many artists depicted Hatcher, this triceratops, as stooped and awkward. (laughs) You could see a lot of the paintings or illustrations or whatever. Eventually, scientists, though, found more fossils and learned that dinosaurs lived for a long time and they were actually very successful as a group. And finally, in 1998, Hatcher was remounted properly and given the name Hatcher in honor of the paleontologist John Bell Hatcher, who had found most of the bones. And Hatcher was at the entrance of the last American Dinosaurs exhibit, but come 2019, the main attraction will be a T-Rex, as I said earlier, and Hatcher will be lying at the T-Rex's feet, about to become prey. Well, I guess it's unclear exactly how T-Rex and Triceratops interacted, so the exhibit is keeping what happens to Hatcher a little ambiguous, like, is Hatcher already dead and being scavenged, or is the T-Rex killing Hatcher? We don't know. So you know what's going to happen to Hatcher, you just don't know. Don't know how Hatcher, <laughs> how that happened to Hatcher, I guess, yeah. Then, depending on what scientists learn, they're saying the exhibit may change in the future, so that's nice for Hatcher. I guess so. I wonder if when they updated it in 1998, they got rid of the hadrosaur feet and put in like some more I think accurate so. ones. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, it must have been a big project because it took, what, almost 100 years to change, to change it. But I wonder uh, if they had a sign like, these are hadrosaur feet, <laughs> when they knew. That could be, yeah. Next, the Burke Museum in Washington State published a post about Arizona's Petrified Forest National Park in the late Triassic. The University of Washington biology professor and curator of vertebrate paleontology, Christian Sidor, is working with the National Park Service to survey the lands. So he and his team have spent two years studying and collecting fossils, and they found a number of animals, including early carnivorous dinosaurs, amphibians, and more. And these bones will go back to the museum. So nothing to report on too much yet, except that they've done this, and it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that petrified forest seems really awesome. Yeah. And next up, we have two new dinosaur track site studies. They're both previously known track sites, though. Just extra information we've gotten out of them. The first one's a 20-year-old discovery from China in the Tong Fossey Formation. And it's actually just a few miles from North Korea. It's like right up in that, you know, near Siberia, not a lot of people kind of zone. And it's about 100 million years old, putting it right in the middle of the Cretaceous. And they've got six tracks and they looked more closely at them and digitally mapped them during this study. And they found that they are mostly theropod tracks. There's also some ornithopod tracks that they weren't sure about the first time. And then they also found five or six other tracks from a previously undiscovered layer where they had kind of dug up some earth previously when they found a different specimen. Hmm. And those are likely from a large quadruped like a sauropod. Yes. Although they might be from a Thyreophoran, also known as Ankylosaur or Stegosaur. Not as good. I think it's better. No. <laughs> but there aren't any Thyreophorans known from that area of Asia, so they're guessing probably more likely a sauropod. Good. <laughs> <laughs> the other track site is from the Huai Dam Chum track site in northeast Thailand, and there are about 600 tracks in a mudstone layer there. And they have small theropod tracks and crocodilomorph tracks. The theropod tracks are largely parallel to one another. And they're interpreting that to mean that they're possibly gregarious. And it also looks like there might be two different types in the larger group. And that might be either different genders or different ages. And, you know, it kind of shows the co-mingling. And then there's also another group that kind of runs perpendicular to the first group. And they think that the group A, the larger group, looks like it's walking along a meandering river and that there are possibly multiple waves of the dinosaurs, like they're kind of walking in a group, but some were lagging behind a little bit. Whereas the other group that's moving perpendicular, which would, I guess, be across the stream, they didn't really describe exactly why they would be moving that direction, Looks like they all came in one big group, but similar size theropods. And then there's just kind of some crocodilomorphs mixed in, but possibly more evidence for gregarious dinosaurs and this time theropods. I hadn't heard of this dinosaur track site before in Northeast Thailand, though. It's a pretty amazing track site with 600 tracks, so seems like it's worth a visit. Yeah. Add to the long, long list. Yeah. That kind of reminds me, well, I guess we're talking about theropods here, but Jurassic Park is now on Netflix. And so Garrett and I watched it earlier and that scene where uh, they first see, you know, the, the Brachiosaurus and, and then they look around and there's that pond or that lake or something and they're all walking to get all the different herbivores are walking together. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, Dr. Grant, was it? I thought it was Ellie. No, it was, I think it was Alan Grant. He says, oh, they do uh, move in herds. Yeah. <laughs> He's so excited. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Yeah, I think the first three Jurassic Park movies are on Netflix now. I don't think Jurassic World is on there. Just that weird Lego Jurassic World short thing. It's like 30 <laughs> minutes long. I forgot about that. Yeah. That was good. Next, an artist in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island in Canada is creating lifelike dinosaur sculptures in his home. His name is Chris Ruprecht, and he sculpts at night. His day job is actually being a chef, which I was kind of wondering, like, does he ever sculpt his food? But anyway, 
<laughs> he's working on a baby raptor. He's been at it for four months. The photos that they show uh, on CBC where we found this article, they're really detailed with a lot of texture so that, that he created using guitar string, plastic wrap, and fake nails. The plan is to bake the sculpture and then paint it. And he said that he became interested in dinosaurs after watching Jurassic Park. Hey, speaking of, the, this is his first <laughs> sculpting project, and then he plans to create a bigger model when he's done. It looks really cool. I love a good dinosaur sculpture. I wish I knew how to sculpt better. Mm -hmm. My only hope is 3D printing. <laughs> <laughs> you can do some cool stuff with 3D printing. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely do way cooler stuff with 3D printing than I can with sculpting. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Chronicle Collectibles, which is a company of collectors and prop makers who recreate iconic Hollywood props, has recreated a Jurassic Park T-Rex bust. So they use casting from Stan Winston Studios, which made all of the like dinosaur looks in Jurassic Park. And the bust is 19 inches, 48 centimeters long, and it was custom painted by artist Steve Riojas to match the texture and color of the animatronic T-Rex from the movie. And so if you want it, the bus costs $650. Yeah, I think that's been on there for a while. We might have talked about that with Brad Jost Yeah, a little while back. But they Came have some again. cool stuff on Chronicle Collectibles. Mm -hmm. It's all super expensive, though. <laughs> yeah, but... It's like authentic and whatnot. Yeah, for the true collectors, right? Yeah. Next, James Gurney, the author and illustrator of Dinotopia, has shared his process for recreating... Uh, Con McKenna and Anki Ornis on his blog, Gurney Journey. So he shares a video that shows his sketches of Con McKenna and paintings. And this is to show the art director of the magazine Ranger Rick, which they eventually published these uh, illustrations. I used to get Ranger Rick when I was a kid. That was a pretty good magazine. <laughs> good. So it's a short video. It's less than a minute long. And in it, James said that he thought of turkeys in his backyard in the way that they displayed feathers. And so he depicted it as uh, this comic and I was kind of, you know, putting its limbs on display and also having these dramatic patterns on its wings. Cool. Yeah. So for Inky Ornis, he built this paper over wire maquette, which was really cool. Uh, and then he took a photo of the maquette outside so that he could get the lighting right. And then he creates an oil painting based on that photo. And that one also has colorful wings. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Next, in Berthoud, Colorado, a husband and wife team who runs Abbott Glass and Door Repair, they have a new mascot, a theropod nicknamed Chewy. So Chewy stands outside the store with a broken pane of glass around his neck, and then many people take pictures with him. And Amber and Keith Davis, who are the husband and wife team, they first saw Chewy eight years ago in a neighboring town, but it took that long for the Davises to convince Chewy's owner, Ed Honebein, to sell him. Hmm. That's because... He had found Chewie on a road trip to California 10 years ago and I guess was really attached. So eventually they did agree on a price and Ed sold him on the condition that Chewie be placed somewhere he could easily be seen. <laughs> and now lots of people in this town in Colorado, I guess they love seeing Chewie. And when asked what a dinosaur has to do with glass, Amber said, quote, I say technically nothing, but it makes people stop and look, which is probably true. Probably a lot of pictures being taken. Yeah. It's funny that the condition was it had to be on display. It's like, are you going to spend a bunch of money on a dinosaur sculpture and like hide it away in a back room? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess if it's in a backyard or something, harder to see. Yeah. It does look pretty cool. That's like bursting through a window frame, basically. Yeah. <laughs> 
Next, Extinct Vlog wrote about dinosaurs in the Disney film Fantasia. So dinosaurs appear in the Rite of Spring segment, if you remember that segment. And they were accurate to what paleontologists knew about dinosaurs at the time. This is in the 1930s and early 1940s. So before the Rite of Spring, dinosaurs weren't depicted as scary. If you think of like Gertie the dinosaur from the 1914 animation. Well, in King Kong, they were a little scary, but I guess generally. Yeah, generally. But Walt Disney said in 1938 that when they started working on Fantasia, he wanted a sequence that would be, quote, a coldly accurate reproduction of what science thinks went on during the first few billion years of this planet's existence. Oh, I guess that's the difference. Gertie was supposed to be like at the actual time, whereas King Kong is like a monster interacting with people kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if Gertie was from the time, though, since he... Gertie was interacting with a person, but... Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So Julian Huxley, Barnum Brown, and Roy Chapman Andrews served as consultants along with Edwin Hubble, which it's is awesome. Yeah. yeah. And Brown had hypothesized that dinosaurs died out from intense drought, which is what's depicted in this sequence. There's scorching sunlight. And animators probably had access to the fossils from the American Museum of Natural History for reference, which would have been awesome. And the idea was that science dictated the story, not art. Though looking back, we can see a lot of inaccuracies. But as the author Jillian Noyes wrote, there were some things that they did get right. For example, the T-Rex and Stegosaurus fight each other. That's actually inaccurate since they didn't live at the same time. But (laughs) the thing they got right was, well, and this is kind of roundabout, but interesting look at it, I found. So the idea was they gave T-Rex three fingers instead of two because Disney thought it looked better. And Allosaurus, which did live at the same time and place as Stegosaurus, had three fingers, not two. <laughs> so maybe they were just accidentally drawing Allosaurus instead. It's like a mashup between a T-Rex and an Allosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the sequence also showed some dinosaurs in herds, which was different from the thinking at the time that they were isolated and solitary. And, you know, just brought to life dinosaurs. So as Jillian puts it, quote, far from being cute animal personalities, Disney's words, not mine, the dinosaurs in right of spring tap into our most primal fears and desires in order to suture us into the most animalistic of perspectives. When Stegosaurus succumbs to T-Rex, a part of us withers away along with the former's remains. When we witness dinosaurs hatching from eggs, hope is restored in us. When the dinosaurs fight to survive, we are reminded just how brutal our own existence can be. There is no latent metaphor for a modern day controversy like in Jurassic Park, no clear-cut heroes or villains like in Land Before Time, just us and the dinosaurs who are completely oblivious to their own mortality. That universality, I believe, is what makes the short so special and timeless. And she ends, quote, But most importantly, it proved that the impossible was possible. Against all odds, Disney has succeeded in bringing dinosaurs back to life. And I think that's interesting because a lot of times we talk about Jurassic Park and Land Before Time and how that brought on this whole new generation of paleontologists. But then it's like, what got people interested in dinosaurs before? And I totally had forgotten about Fantasia. Yeah, me and that too. there were dinosaurs then. <laughs> yeah, I don't think about Fantasia much. Mm-mm. But that is in that first wave. You know, then there was kind of a big gap in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And then it kind of came back in the 70s with Bob Bakker and all them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's good to, to remember these things and makes me want to dig through some older movies. <laughs> yeah, we need to do some more older movie reviews for sure. Definitely. Speaking about kind of fictional dinosaurs. So Spence Fixorian wrote a post about Ritosaurus, which he said is the best fictional dinosaur. 
another thing I didn't know, actually. So it first appeared in a Ray Bradbury short story from 1951 called The Foghorn, where it destroys a lighthouse. And then in 1953, that story was adapted into a feature film with special effects called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And it was made by Bradbury's friend, Ray Harryhausen, who had previously worked on Mighty Joe Young with his mentor, Willis O'Brien, who made King Kong, speaking of king kong yep. <laughs> and this started a subgenre of giant monster movies and Redosaurus was the star it had sprawled legs and its tail dragged but anyway it appeared again in 1970 in the film when dinosaurs ruled the earth which may have been a sequel to the remake of one million years bc that ray harryhausen had worked on though harryhausen didn't work on when dinosaurs ruled the earth so in that movie, Ritosaurus thinks that a baby, a human baby, is her own and protects the baby. Then there's also a baby Ritosaurus, which acts like that human baby's pet. <laughs> and then in another movie, Ritosaurus shows up again, 1978, in the movie Planet of the Dinosaurs. It's only a cameo and it gets killed by a T-Rex, but apparently Ray Harryhausen toured the studio while the movie was being made and then gave them permission for that cameo. And as Spencer puts it, Quote, to summarize, Ritosaurus is the greatest dinosaur that never lived because it was made up and then it appeared in three different films that have nothing to do with each other. And to think this all began with a short story by Ray Bradbury. <laughs> yeah, Ray Bradbury seems like a really random connection. Yeah. Because what, what is the books that he's known for? It's Fahrenheit. Like, yeah, Fahrenheit 451, right? Yeah. I guess that's kind of like sci-fi, but it's more like dystopian future sci-fi. Not. I wouldn't like have expected a dinosaurs. dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> the thing does look, it's a lot like Godzilla, but more sprawled. I think it, it looks more like a giant Komodo dragon or something to me. Yeah. But yeah. But still cool. But that's how it started. And yeah. it kept going for a while. True. So speaking of media, again, the TV show Legends of Tomorrow featured a dinosaur in their recent episode. So in the episode... Uh, this character Rip crashes their time traveling ship into the Cretaceous, and the they crash into the Cretaceous. Well, their ship crashes in. Do they go through like a wormhole or something, and then they it, like it can accidentally... just travel through time at any point in time they want? So I mean, that gets into a longer, more complicated. They were trying story. to go to the Cretaceous, or they accidentally wound up in the Cretaceous. He crashed their ship, and they ended up in the Cretaceous. Oh, gotcha. It's part of a much longer story that has nothing to do with dinosaurs. Okay. So. <laughs> they were traveling through space time and messed up, and ended up in the Cretaceous. He sabotaged them. So oh no! They ended up in the Cretaceous. So, oh boy. Anyway, the characters Ray, Nick, and Amir venture out to retrieve something that they need from a T Rex nest. And that T-Rex is named Gertrude, which I wonder if that's a throwback to Gertie. But anyway, yeah. um, she doesn't like Ray because in between Legends of Tomorrow seasons one and two, Ray's character was stuck in the Cretaceous. And I can't remember the details of why. And we don't know too much about that time yet. He kind of reveals a little bit in this episode. But anyway, in that time, he had met Gertrude and eaten one of her eggs because he was hungry. <laughs> and... Ray, when he was living there, made this area that keeps Gertrude away because he had lined it with a male T-Rex urine somehow. And then now back with his friends in the present slash Cretaceous present episode anyway, 
He goes to catch an iguana to make soup. I'm glad that they at least said that they were in the Cretaceous when they came across the T-Rex instead of in the Jurassic. Yeah. Points for that. <laughs> yeah. So Gertrude the T-Rex is scaly, but she's really agile and fast, and it's very Jurassic Park-like. And when she sees Ray, she charges at Ray and his group of friends. But Anya, whose character can channel animals, channels Gertrude and calms her down, and then Gertrude walks away. There's not nearly enough dinosaurs in this episode, at least I thought so. Most of it was like a buildup with roars and large footsteps, but it was still fun to watch. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> you didn't watch much of it. <laughs> I think you I watched the one part. scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Garrett's not into the superhero type no, shows and I'm movies. Over it. But anyway. <laughs> Next, Curiosity posted a photo on Facebook called What's Your Dinosaur Name? And it's based on your birth month, the first letter of your name, and your eye color. So based on this, Garrett's dinosaur name is Nicoganthosaurus. Uh-huh. And my name is Brachyspinosaurus. So a lot of the parts of the names in this chart are common dinosaur names. You got Dino, Odin, Raptor, etc. We'll post a link and then, you know, now you know our birth months and eye colors. <laughs> based you want to dinosaur. reverse engineer it? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And last in the news, there's a new app that was temporarily released for a New Zealand park that included dinosaurs in augmented reality. And I say it included dinosaurs in augmented reality, but you actually got to choose between either kitten collecting with all these fairies around and like <laughs> giant mushrooms or being chased around by dinosaurs. That's very different. Yeah. And it looked like most of the boys picked being chased around by dinosaurs and most of the girls were collecting kittens. <laughs> but <laughs> there were a lot of people running like frantically. So I think the dinosaurs were more popular. I'm glad. Yeah. The way it looked is you kind of look through your phone like you're doing the augmented reality version of Pokemon Go and then it superimposes, you know, the world on it. So as you're looking through the phone, it looks like there's a dinosaur there, but otherwise it just looks like a regular park, obviously. It was only around for a week at the Audrey Gale Reserve in New Zealand and it was part of the Parks Week 2017 celebration. So pretty cool. New Zealand keeps coming up with awesome dinosaur stuff. I know. And yeah, like I said, it looked like the kids really enjoyed it. I would have gone there and checked it out too <laughs> if it was in the U.S. Maybe they'll bring it to the U.S. I hope so. There was a rumor a while ago about there being like a Jurassic Park type Pokemon Go game, hmm. but we haven't seen anything like that. That'd be nice. I would definitely play that. I might play that too. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. 
yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to jump into our interview with Bruce Schumacher, a paleontologist from the U.S. Forest Service. We're joined this week by Bruce Schumacher, who is the South Zone Paleontologist of the Rocky Mountain region, assuming that this website is accurate. Is that still your title? That's correct. So is that, it seems crazy because the description of it says that that covers Southern Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Uh, it's actually much larger than <laughs> that now, if, if you can imagine. I'm very fortunate. I have a, a unique position within the U.S. Forest Service. Most folks that think of the national forest system think of Smoky Bear and wildfires, of course. That's a very big part of what the Forest Service does, as well as managing timber stocks for the public good. But the Forest Service does employ a few paleontologists. So the South Zone uh, now encompasses basically the southern United States. Oh, so I cover from California, Nevada, through New Mexico, and on into the eastern states, basically the southern half of the United States. Wow. So are there just two paleontologists for the whole Forest Service? And an office position that serves uh, as the lead for the Forest Service. So there are three paleontologists in the agency. Wow. That's a lot of area to cover. It, it is. The National Forest System is uh, just shy of 200 million acres, if you can imagine. And being the National Forest System, obviously a lot of that area, it, it sounds like a massive number, just like if we're talking 200 million years ago. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we fathom that? 200 million acres. But it gets easier. Obviously, the geology and the terrain of much of that National Forest is granitic rocks, metamorphic rocks, and or areas covered by trees and forests. Mm. So let's say just 10% of that is terrain that is interesting paleontologically. That winnows it down to a, a mere 20 million acres. <laughs> well, that's all. It sounds so easy <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with all that space that's relevant, I assume a lot of it's in Colorado because I know you spend a lot of time there. But are there any other big spots like maybe Utah or... There actually are all across the United States. There are those select areas where if the sedimentary geology is dominantly of the Phanerozoic period, sometime after Precambrian, 
there is potential for paleontological resources. And um, although there's a lot of focus on things like dinosaurs, Colorado, much like the central United States, one of the, the hottest areas for paleontology in the national forest system uh, is national grasslands, actually, mm-hmm. and not the national forests. Because so much of that terrain is open, rolling flats and or badlands areas that are devoid of, of forests and trees. Yeah. And the, ge- the geology is right. So the national grasslands are only about 3 million acres of the national forest system. But a lot of the, the really prominent paleontological resources in the Forest Service are on grasslands. But yes, in answer to your question, Colorado, Utah, Nevada... Arizona, all over the Southwest, there are places on national forests that have paleo resources. Gotcha. So, national grassland is a subset of national forest? Yes. National grasslands came about the 1930s Depression era dust bowl laid waste to a lot of the lands in the mid-continent, and Mm. those, those lands became the national grasslands. And in about 1960, they were added to the national forest system. Gotcha. And then before we got on the air, you were saying the National Park Service is a subset of the Department of Agriculture. I'm sorry, Interior. Most of the other federal land management authorities that you will think of are Interior. That would include National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Rec, Fish Wildlife Service, and and I've uh, left out a few others. But all of those are Interior. Hmm. The uh, Forest Service is Agriculture. Okay. Does that make any meaningful difference for doing paleontology in one versus the other? It does and it doesn't. It creates some bureaucratic wrinkles. You may or may not be aware that there's recently been a a law in the United States passed, the Paleontological Resources Preservation Act Mm -hmm. of 2009. And so a lot of the listeners might have questions about various aspects of that law. But bottom line, agriculture, that is Forest Service, works very closely with interior agencies, dominantly BLM, so that our policies and our procedures for the management of fossils are coordinated and as similar as possible. Okay, nice. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit to some real paleontology that you're very involved with, you've got maybe the most exciting dinosaur trackway that I've ever heard of, which is the one referred to as many different things, Dinosaur Lake, the Dinosaur Highway, and then I guess the official name is the Purgatoire Valley. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, Purgatory. Purgatory? (laughs) Looks French, but I guess not. (laughs) It it is actually French in the spelling. It's it's Purgatoire. Locally, and some people don't care uh, for this name, the canyon area along the Purgatoire River is called Picket Wire picket wire canyon lands. And so if you can imagine, uh, picket wire is merely a bastardization, if I can say that, <laughs> yeah. of the of the French word purgatoire. Oh, that's not even close. Yeah. If you're a mid-continental person, you know, a, a Texan, not to pick on Texans, but someone wrangling cattle and you come across this name on a map and you read it and you say picket wire. <laughs> and so officially the area is known um, in law as Picket Wire Canyonlands. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's the Purgatoire River Valley. And there's a lot of lore that goes along with that as well. Um, the Spanish uh, lore of that river valley is the River of Lost Souls, forever lost in purgatory due to an expeditionary 
party that was lost in that area hmm. in about the 1600s. Be that as it may, back to your original question. Yeah, in, in the Purgatory River Valley, which is a tributary of the Arkansas River, it's a bit like a mini Grand Canyon in southeastern Colorado. Most of the southeastern Colorado plains are nothing like Rocky Mountain High. It's very scrubby, steppe, open grassland, short grass prairie, very dry, very southwest feel, desert-like. But this deeply carved river valley gives geologists a look at layers of rock that are not otherwise exposed in this part of Colorado, mm. namely the Morrison Formation which is so well known for the dinosaur fauna that it contains, but also older rocks clear back to Triassic age that we don't ordinarily think of being exposed in a plains area like southeastern Colorado. So as you referred to it, the uh, dinosaur track site in the Purgatory Valley is sometimes called Dinosaur Lake, and I think that's probably the most appropriate name because that's exactly what it is, is a freshwater inland lake in the Morrison Basin, where a lot of sauropod dinosaur herds and theropod dinosaurs of the time uh, were frequenting the, the shoreline and leaving behind a lot of fossilized footprints. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, you sent an awesome picture that kind of outlines the different tracks. And they've all got nicknames like Mama and Limpy and Tony and Baby Cakes. <laughs> yes. So the names that you saw on that recent map are new excavations. So um, a little bit of history. The official recognition of this site as far as being described as a dinosaur track site in, in white newspapers was in the mid-1930s. And that's when the, the site was first made known to uh, paleontologists at the um, American Museum of Natural History hmm. who visited the site about that time and subsequently went on to work and more famously excavate sauropod trackways at the Paluxy River Trackway in Texas. And the purgatory site, being very remote and very difficult to get to, was sort of left untended to, or unexamined, if you will, until the mid-1980s when Martin Lockley and colleagues really took a very hard look at this site and described it in GSA, in the GSA Bulletin in 1986, I believe, and coined it Dinosaur Lake at the time. Hmm. When the site was first named, it was proclaimed to be, and it depends on how you slice and dice things. Um, we always like to have, whether it's a dinosaur, the biggest dinosaur, or a track site, the biggest track site. <laughs> but this has been called the largest mapped assemblage of dinosaur trackways in North America. Now, as far as how this ranks with other sites in the world, if we even constrain it further to just Jurassic Age, just late Jurassic trackways, and particularly of sauropods mixed with theropods. I just can't think of a whole lot of other places in the world where there are in excess of 1,500 individual tracks exposed in one place. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. A lot of the tracks that we cover in our news segment, they find like eight or maybe even just one or two prints and everybody gets excited because it's got a new scientific name and it might be something unique, but you can't really learn too much about it. But in this one, you've got so many different tracks and you can identify different individuals and different even, you know, like you say, there's theropods, there's sauropods, there's, I think there's some ornithopods mixed in there. It's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, and so those are dominantly the the three track makers that are represented at the site. Basically, sauropod trackways fall into two classes, if you will, probably representing two tribes or two subfamilies of of sauropods. Hmm. What are called narrow-gauge trackways, like those at the Purgatory site, are thought to be diplodocids. Hmm. So potential uh, track makers could be Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, Barosaurus, those kinds of animals. Versus wide-gauge trackways, and those are thought to be the brachiosaurids, camarasaurids, brachiosaurus, those kinds of animals, a different subfamily. All of the sauropod trackmakers that we've so far recognized at the purgatory site are narrow-gauge, so diplodocid dinosaurs. Really cool. So is the difference how wide the trackway is, like in between the prints? Exactly. Okay. So if the if you can imagine an arm lizard or a brachiosaurid standing in your your favorite artist's uh, pose, uh, it's not hard to imagine their their feet are a little more separated, more sprawled, if you will. So their trackways, although they're quite large and the feet are obviously close together, you will definitely see a distinction between rights and lefts, with a half meter to a meter separating rights from lefts. Whereas diplodocid dinosaurs, they're, they're walking essentially like we do, rights and lefts falling just about in the same line, not nearly as much separation between the tracks. Hmm. And it, looking at the trackways, are they walking like you'd expect a quadruped where the back foot kind of lands right before, right behind the front leg, or do they walk anything unique about how they walk? <laughs> Yeah, sauropod trackways uh, and uh, a lot of people who really begin to examine them, after they, they think on it a little bit, they say, wait a minute, we're only seeing hind footfalls. Yeah. And this is a, this is a quadrupedal dinosaur, and they're, they're absolutely correct. So diplodocids carry the bulk of their weight on their hind limbs. There is some weight, obviously, supported by those front limbs. But the bulk of the weight is over the hips. And the feeder, the pez prints, the hind footprints are larger also than the front feet. So the hind feet are going to be more deeply impressed and larger to begin with. Very often, because these animals are walking at a very slow gait through a soupy muck along the edge of this shoreline, most oftentimes they are overprinting their front footprints, sort of erasing them as they go along. So all you're seeing are the hind footfalls. Once in a while, you'll see a crescent shape in front of the hind footfalls, which are sort of the leftover, the front edge of a front footprint. But Mm. most of the time, they're almost wholly erased. Yeah, because looking at it, it almost looks like just a huge pothole or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Historically, in fact, even on turn of the 20th century geologic maps, the area was referred to as elephant crossing. (laughs) So historically, it was a great place to, to, to ford the river uh, in your wagon or your Model T because the bottom of the river the riverbed was not muddy. It was this hard limestone bed into which the animals made their footprints. And uh, settlers at the time obviously would look at these big potholes and even they would recognize patterns of rights and lefts. And it's not hard to imagine that, wow, those look like maybe something like an elephant yeah. would leave behind. A huge elephant. (laughs) A very large elephant, yes. So going to your more recent area that was mapped, were you kind of involved with all of those identifications of the different dinosaurs 
prints? Yeah, absolutely. As far as the naming, the fun names, those are all um, crafted by volunteers. I really have to give a big shout out to the, the Forest Service has a program called Passport in Time, and it's, it's abbreviated PIT for short, which is appropriate in a dinosaur quarry. Um, a PIT project is in a pit very often. <laughs> Uh, but these particular volunteers, many of them have been coming back to this area and working with me for 15 plus years. And uh, they really enjoy their work very much. And as far as naming the animals, that's where the individual nicknames, if you will, came from. But that idea really came to us about five years ago that although the site is very large, it was obvious on the north bank of the river, there were many trackways that led toward a very shallow sandbank, modern alluvium, that the river had obviously washed in over the past century or so. And the idea was, do those trackways continue underneath the sand? So these tracks had been exposed at one time by the action of the river itself and subsequently reburied. Uh, there were some early experiments done with ground-penetrating radar to see if Maybe we could detect these footprints and bounce an energy signal off that limestone bed and, and read the tracks, if you will, black box technology without even excavating them. Yeah, that'd be cool. Long story short, <laughs> long story short, it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't, didn't work at all. Uh, but subsequent excavation revealed that, yes, in fact, there was a very large track site exposed north of the present area, say, two, three, or four hundred years ago. If we were to visit the area where the trackway is now, it was there, although it was much further north, and there was a whole different series of tracks exposed at that time. Hmm. The river has since migrated southward, exposed a new series of tracks, the 1,500-plus tracks that are currently exposed, and reburied a lot of the tracks that had been exposed in an earlier time. So we're kind of going back and recording an earlier version uh, of that track site, which is a, a very fun thing to think about and try to figure out in terms of timing of events, not just the dinosaurs, but the the natural geologic exposure of that trackway. Yeah, that's really cool. Did the river, while it's washing over these tracks, damage them significantly? It seems like if it was getting buried and then the materials getting removed from on top of them over and over again, like that would wear it down like sandpaper or something. Yeah, and, you're, and that, you're absolutely right. That's, that's spot on. So a lot of the tracks are polished. Hmm. It's amazing, actually, thinking that if you visit the Purgatory River, it's a very lazy river most of the time, but it's prone and susceptible to flash flooding, which are very violent events. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's um, Volkswagen-sized material moving down the stream bed <laughs> occasionally. Having said that, uh, that's the nature of geology. The tracks really um, are in very good shape. In some places, they are sort of melted. You can quantify this. The upstream edge of most tracks are relatively well-preserved. Mm. It's the downstream edge that really catches all of the energy. So if you can imagine this pothole analogy that you were using, as grains are bumping along the stream, they don't really knock into that upstream side of the print. It's really the downstream edge that sort of gets eroded or erased a little bit. So although the tracks have been, I kind of refer to it as melted a bit, the scientific information is still there. Nice. And even even tridactyl prints, like a, 
say, an Allosaurid print, if I can call it Allosaurus. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big carnivore at the time. Even tridactyl prints, which are much smaller than sauropod tracks, have survived the test of time very well. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And you said it's in limestone? It is in limestone, which isn't, you know, it's it's a relatively soft rock, geologically speaking. It's certainly not, you know, hard like a granite, but it's a well-indurated limestone, a very hard limestone. Mm. So it survived very well. It's amazing to see. I, I wonder if the episode uh, during which the tracks were currently working on, if maybe they were only exposed for a period of decades, perhaps, because in light of the fact that it's very obvious that was the stream bottom, the tracks are polished. You can even see sheet wash uh, scratches and tool marks across the surface in places. Mm-hmm. Very obvious flow direction. The prints survived. So I can't imagine that they were part of the stream bottom for, you know, many decades. <laughs> That's really cool. Is there any story that you can tell by looking at the prints, like where different animals might have been interacting or any behavior? Yeah, so the purgatory site, the real magic, the real claim to fame to that site always has been and is communal behavior or gregarious behavior in dinosaurs, social behavior, in that the theory of least astonishment suggests that if you have five or six or seven trackways that parallel each other, Rather than individual animals walking by one day, one animal, the next day, another animal, never overprinting, it's more likely that parsimony suggests that it was a group of animals. So this is one of the very first places that social behavior in dinosaurs was accepted as pretty concrete fact. Uh, Seems like pretty hard evidence in the form of these limestone trackways that where there were five or six parallel sauropod trackways, in some cases, even watching the tracks bend or turn uh, gently together in unison, that it seems very likely this is a group of animals uh, behaving much like any other group of animals would, moving together, acting together. So that's the magic of the site. The, the more interesting thing to me that we found most recently, what had been known historically, is that all of the sauropods at the site seem to be teenagers. Hmm. That is medium-sized prints as compared to the size of something like an Apatosaurus skeleton. What we found in the new series of six sauropods that are now on the north bank of the river were previously covered by this Holocene or Pleistocene alluvium that has now been removed. The new area is some 60 meters by 40 meters. As I said, there are six sauropods there. But for the first time, we're seeing, although all of the animals are again moving in the same direction, and they are all equidistant, about two meters apart from each other, just about the width, maybe, of a a sauropod body. For the first time, there are prints that are markedly different in size. So in one, the largest prints of sauropods in this group, the, the individual hind footfalls are nearly one meter in total length, and other individuals are as small as 50 centimeters. So there's, again, hard evidence that we've got mature adults moving along with immature individuals. Wow, that's really neat. Is there anything you can tell with the theropod prints or the ornithopod prints? Many things. So the, the sauropod tracks, going back to those for just one mm-hmm. moment, uh, have been termed, uh, in this area, it's relevant, an ancient Santa Fe trail. Because <laughs> most of the sauropods, 
in the modern geographic orientation are moving west, mm. almost due west. Where? We're not quite sure, but there was a, a herd, it's obvious, moving that direction. Theropods that are at the site, we thought until most recently, and this isn't published uh, yet, but most of the theropods tend to be lone individuals that is not moving in herds, uh, moving as a, a single individual, and sort of all over the place in terms of direction. So one's moving north, one's moving south, and it seems like these uh, are more indicative of, of animals just moving about the shoreline in different directions looking for opportunity, hmm. uh, doing what theropods do. However, having said that, along with this new group of theropods, we've also found that there is a parallel set of theropod trackways, multiple individuals moving in the same direction as the sauropod herd. And it gets richer than that. There is a couple of examples of theropod tracks now overprinting, so direct cross-cutting relationships, overprinting sauropod tracks. So at the very least, we know through that evidence that the plant eater came first, the sauropod herd moved through, and later on, probably not very much later, theropods stepped into those same prints, which, you know, leads to and evokes, you know, the human nature to want to storytell. Yeah. And to say, wow, it looks as if there is a pack of theropods in hot pursuit of this sauropod herd. That's obviously getting into gross speculation. Nevertheless, uh, it makes for a fun story. Yeah. And it, it's perfectly reasonable when you know something about the diets of the, of the theropods. Absolutely. But th for the first time seeing the overprinting, seeing a tridactyl print about 25 centimeters long directly in the middle of a sauropod print, uh, to me was hair standing on end kind of experience. It was like, wow, there's, there's the, the smoking gun. That's the, <laughs> That's the hyena track in the wildebeest track yeah. or whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah, that's really cool. Is the You said that most of the theropod tracks were kind of in the ballpark of the size of an allosaurus. Is that true for those prints too? So as with the sauropods, um, it's been better quantified and known for some time that there's quite a size range of theropods at the site. Um, if memory serves the largest theropod tracks at the site, greatest length would be on the order of 40 centimeters, 35 to 40 centimeters, yeah. whereas many of them are as small as between 15 and 20 centimeters in, in greatest length. What is not known that well, and we're just beginning to try to quantify and try to understand, is what does that mean taxonomically? Mm. The most common uh, mega predator in late Jurassic Morrison times, as you probably know, is Allosaurus. And so if we assume that all of these tracks are Allosaurus, that would tell us that we have a lot of adults and a lot of juvies mm. um, of Allosaurus running around. Alternatively, are these all different species? Are some of these Torvosaurus and some are Ceratosaurus and some are Allosaurus? We don't know for sure. We're beginning to try to tease some answers out of that by measuring the heck out of these sauropod <laughs> or these theropod tracks, measuring interdigital angles, measuring lengths of toes, measuring lengths of heels and heel pads, and trying to statistically look, because we have so many of these tracks, to see if we can begin to tease out variation 
and maybe speciation or, or taxonomy within these trackways. That's a work in progress. Yeah. I remember seeing a presentation at SVP where they were taking a tridactyl print and looking at these tiniest little minutia of little curves by the heel versus, you know, a digit that might be slightly skewed that you would expect in one type of animal and trying to quantify that in some numerical term, which no one has really invented yet. <laughs> yeah. And so for this new trackway area, and in fact, for most of the, the trackways at the Purgatory site, the earliest photo we have of the site, even before we had, way before we had done our modern excavations, is the earliest aerial flights in the 1930s. There's a high angle shot of this area of the river valley in 1934. Hmm. And you can tell, although it's not detailed, you can tell from that photo that the naturally occurring exposed part of the trackway uh, cut out by the action of the river that is exposed today was basically the same in 1934. So some 80 plus years ago, those same tracks we see today were exposed. So they've been exposed for a century or more. <laughs> so the very fine details that you're talking about um, obviously would have been erased. Yeah. There's my surface spalling of the site and something as large as a big sauropod hind footfall pothole lasts a long time. And I guarantee you from photographic evidence, they last more than a century. But the very fine details like that would be gone, especially in those tracks that we know that were part of the river bottom at one time and have been, been polished. So we have to try to look for other evidences than those kinds of subtle details. Gotcha. Do these prints get covered up by the river regularly, like you were talking about flash floods? Pretty much. It's in a, a static state right now by our human perception. But long term, the tracks are exposed in a rather large meander bend. And with time, that meander bend is migrating southward. And so as it uncovers new tracks very slowly to the south, it would then erase or cover back up those tracks to the north of this meander bend. Although that dynamic has changed somewhat from the earliest aerial photographs, again, it's obvious that the, the track site layer used to run all the way across the stream. Hmm. Subsequently, it has been eroded through and the river sort of has a falls area now where it falls over this limestone bed that contains the tracks. So, a lot of those have been irreparably lost sometime in the 30s or 40s or 50s. Hmm. Is there any desire to kind of try to preserve them some way or do you just take good records and then let the river do its own thing because it might uncover something new anyway? Yeah, you, you gave both the right answers. <laughs> they are yes and yes. So the first one is we do what we can, of course, to protect and preserve the prints that are there. The major challenge had been that this hard limestone layer with the tracks in them is interbedded above and below by soft mudstone. Hmm. And the river was eating out underneath that layer and blocks of the trackway were eroding off through time. We've subsequently armored the edge of the, the track site using eroded blocks of the tracks themselves or the layer itself. Hmm. So we've armored that edge and we've pinned with rebar pins, those blocks in place. So in the, uh, Long term, from our perspective in our generation, the modern tracks are very well preserved, with the exception of the little bit of spall that happens uh, seasonally with freeze thaw. But as far as the large scale 
loss of the trackway due to big flood events. That's largely been stopped. Having said that, being you know mere human beings, who knows? The the next year could bring a flood the likes of which we've not seen, and all of our hard efforts will be washed away in a blink. Mm. So you're right. In the end, the bottom line is that we want the tracks to go gracefully, but to make sure that in the interim, we've done everything we can to record them using drone photogrammetry, using LIDAR, using latex peels and photographs and measurements and allowing other researchers to come down and geology field classes to come down and to visit this area so that the data that is recorded by we humans, the data is more important than the tracks themselves. There will always be tracks there for people to go visit and see. But in the eventuality, the likely eventuality that some of these tracks along the edge will be lost in subsequent generations, the data from those tracks is preserved. Nice. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that you've already done photogrammetry and all that because that is such a good way to preserve things. And it's so new too. It's really exciting. Yeah. It's um, in in the early days, that is just 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, we were still uh, mapping tracks with, uh, you know, a long cloth tape and a Brunton compass and uh, using a plane table and Allidade. And all of those techniques are, are wonderful and good. But now we have these, you know, these wonderful new technologies that allow us to, to take these 3D images, mesh them together and literally to map the tracks with a stylus on an iPad yeah. back at home. So it's uh, very nice. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I know you found a, well, maybe not you, but in your purview, they found a giant Apatosaurus scapula. Is that anywhere near the dinosaur lake or is that in a totally different place? No, it's exactly the same place. Oh, really? Um, The tracks have been known for a long, long time, as we've been talking about. About 15 years ago, though, when I first began my job with the Forest Service, it would be uh, abundantly clear to any geologist in the area that there's a lot of Morrison formation in the area. And Morrison formation, of course, means dinosaur bones. Mm -hmm. So in the year 2000, I began my first volunteer project to go and and survey this canyon area in the picket wire or the Purgatoire Valley uh, in and around Dinosaur Lake, that dinosaur track site. And volunteers quickly began to discover bone occurrences. One in particular came to be known as the Last Chance site, and the bones from that quarry are all now in the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Mm. But among the the bones that were in this tangle of dinosaurs in this quarry, it's a bone bed, a bit like Dinosaur National Monument. There were a lot of animals caught up in a flood deposit. Among them was a very large Apatosaurus and a couple of the most memorable pieces of that skeleton that came out were both scapula coracoids. And these scap coracoids, or these shoulder blades, are just shy of eight feet Jeez. in total length. So that's approximately the same size as uh, Supersaurus, the uh, well-known scap coracoid that came out of the Dre Mesa dinosaur quarry in western Colorado. You've probably seen famous pictures of dinosaur Jim Jensen lying on the ground next to a big shoulder Mm -hmm. blade. There are two uh, animals, actually, two famous photographs. One is an animal that's uh, more like a camerasaurid or brachiosaurid, which is now known as Ultrasauros. Mm -hmm. And the other is Supersaurus. 
So I've heard it described uh, that Dinosaur Jim had a congenital inability not to see a, a giant shoulder blade, and he just had to lie down in the dirt next to it <laughs> for a photograph. The volunteers here did the same thing. So the last chance, Corey produced a very large Apatosaurus, uh, perhaps Louise species, perhaps not. That's to be determined. Mm. That is housed into the Denver Museum. But it also included a tangle of Camarasaurid material, as well as a juvenile uh, Diplodocid, uh, kind of tangled into this large adult. So yes, there are both d- dinosaur bone quarries and the largest dinosaur track site in North America sort of in the same place. That's really cool. Yeah. So is that, that's got to be one of the larger Apatosaurus finds, given the size. You know, for a while, I really uh, delved in to that and began to um, look at what are the largest sauropods. That's always a fun exercise, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You may be familiar. Are you familiar with Amphicillia? Yeah. Yeah. And this, this really enormously large vertebra figured by Cope, which has subsequently, I think, either been misplaced or maybe only the neural spine survives. But Denver Museum folks, again, Ken Carpenter, I believe, made a, uh, uh, a mock of, of what this vertebrae would look like. It's just impressive to see. And, and he and others have then scaled up uh, dimensions of that vertebrae to speculate as to the largest sizes of that sauropod, whatever that sauropod is. Mm-hmm. Scaling up the scap coracoid that we dug out of the last chance site and just doing some very rough exercises with uh, figures that I could find in, in various publications. The length, the total length of the animal that I came up with was on the order of 80 to 90 feet. Wow. Somewhere in that size range. That's a big apatosaurus. Yeah. It's a large for any animal. Yeah, that's true. Are there any other dinosaurs that you found or that have been found on your, you know, half of the U.S. <laughs> that stand out? So most of the uh, information I'm giving you is about this one select spot in the Purgatory River Valley of southeastern Colorado because it's close to home mm-hmm. for me. Most of the area, uh, the rest of the United States is thankfully and fortunately worked by a whole host of permittees, partners that work in kind with the the Forest Service and other land management agencies. Hmm. Uh, People from universities and museums under permit um, take research groups and and do much the same thing that I'm doing with Forest Service volunteers. But yes, in this particular area, there are other quarries. Uh, We've had several sauropod quarries uh, over the last 10 years or so. More recently, we've begun to migrate a little bit younger in time, away from the Morrison and up into the Cretaceous. And so we're beginning to, um, although not dinosaurs, they lived at the same time as Cretaceous dinosaurs, we're beginning to dabble with elasmosaurid plesiosaurs mm-hmm. and large fish and other things that are coming out of the marine rocks that are above the Morrison formation. That's really cool. Have you ever heard of the new Six Peaks dinosaur track sites that showed up in northern British Columbia within the last couple of years. As a matter of fact, I heard you discussing <laughs> that particular track site in a podcast um, just a few days ago. I was working in a uh, Pachyrhizotus quarry, a, a large tuna-like fish in the Greenhorn limestone. I was excavating the tail of this animal with a volunteer, and he was playing the uh, I Know Dino podcast about that site. 
And I have read bits about the Six Peaks track site years ago, although I'm not current. Uh, I, I do believe, if, if memory serves, it's an early Cretaceous site, and dominantly the tracks that are there are small theropods. Now, you correct me if I'm wrong so far. That sounds right, but they had, I don't know if they said which one there was the most of, because they were mostly just listing, we have a lot of this, we also have a lot of that. It just reminded me a lot of Dinosaur Lake listening to the description. Yeah, and it's 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 obviously by any uh, by any measure an impressively huge site, and it sounds like much the same as the activity here. There are plans at that particular site to enlarge it, mm. which sounds very exciting. At least that's what I what I think I heard. There were plans to excavate more trackways. Yeah, the more the merrier. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's certainly the plan at the um, the Purgatory uh, trackways at Dinosaur Lake. Um, I would like to temper my comments just a little bit, though, and, and say that um, for those folks out there that are wondering, hmm, exposing trackways, they're susceptible to erosion and to damage. Bear in mind, the tracks that we're exposing are probably ultimately, uh, as soon as we're done mapping them, going to be reclaimed again by the river. <laughs> um, so, so they'll be quite well protected, I'm sure, much more quickly than, than we want them to be. But they've already survived prior to us even being around and worrying about them. They've survived decades of the Purgatory River running directly over the top of yeah. them. So I think they're okay. What we are not doing, haven't done to this point, although it's, it's tempting for a couple of reasons, we have not excavated any in situ tracks, meaning tracks that are still covered by virgin Morrison formation. On the south side of the, the main trackway area uh, that was originally described at Dinosaur Lake, there is a meter thick package of Morrison uh, overlying. And there are many places where sauropod trackways disappear seductively beneath that green mudstone. And so it's not hard to imagine that any, any inquiring mind would say, wow, there's the place to dig for a track. <laughs> and definitely you would find them. We probably will do that with a few tracks just to quantify the effects of weathering. Hmm. That is, what does a really fresh track look like versus these that have been out in the weather for 80 or 100 or 120 years? And to see, you know, what the variation is and are there fine details in some of those tracks that we're not seeing in the modern tracks. So, I just wanted to, again, temper what we're doing. All of the tracks that are being excavated are being re-excavated. Yeah. They've already been unearthed by the Purgatory River. We're just undoing it again for a little while before the river takes it away again. Yeah, but just to play devil's advocate, why don't you just keep excavating until you can't find any more tracks? Well, the, the limitations right now are person power and funding. Hmm. <laughs> Efforts began with much uh, zeal with buckets and small shovels. And then it quickly became, well, a, uh, an ATV and a garden tractor, and then a full-size tractor. It's to the point now that the back wall of this newly excavated area, area requires a retainer, and it's about 12 to 15 feet high. Mm. And further excavation requires heavy equipment, an excavator to come in to move the gravel deposits off of the, the tracks for the finer scale work that is done by hand by volunteers. 
fortunately, it's been a, uh, a win-win situation. The roads that lead to the site are all just native mud trails, two-track trails going over Morrison Formation dominantly. So you can imagine what those roads are like when it's wet. <laughs> We've been able to greatly improve the roads in some areas by using the gravel we're removing from the tracks and uh, hardening the road hmm. that leads to the site. But the, the only limitation really is just time and person power. And exactly as you say, we have done. That is, once it was recognized that there was a sauropod trackway going into the back wall, and then it was subsequently recognized that there was another one next to it and another one next to it, and that they were all going that direction. Guess which way all of the volunteers started digging. Yeah. And guess which way we're still digging. It's exactly where the sauropod herd is going. And it just happened, um, luckily, that it parallels the river corridor. So it couldn't have worked out better. Mm, so you don't have to go straight into a cliff. Exactly. We don't have to go away from the river and into... Uh, a place where we would have, you know, environmental concerns. Right now, the disturbance is fairly limited and right within, although we're, we're sure not to do uh, anything that would affect the riparian system, given the flash flood nature mm. of the purgatory, like I say, the efforts that uh, we've put in there could be erased at a moment's notice. But I hope not until we get all of our mapping done. Yeah. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the Forest Service or any particular finds? Mainly just to uh, encourage people that if they have an interest in fossils, whether it be dinosaurs or seashells or shark teeth, whatever it may be, there are a lot of opportunities to get involved with educating yourself and learning about the fossil record in activities that are taking place on public lands, including national forest system lands. There are not only volunteer projects sponsored by the Forest Service, but volunteer projects that are sponsored by museums and universities occurring on, on public lands. And all a person really needs to do is inquire to get involved and to begin to, to learn about this. And also to make people aware that there are limited opportunities for exploring and collecting fossils on public lands called casual collecting. Hmm. And I would encourage people to learn more about what casual collecting means in brochures or the fossil law or online content. You can think of it as maybe hobby collecting. And permitted collection by researchers certainly is authorized and allowed. But commercial collection that is collecting fossils for profit, no. Uh, absolutely illegal. Years and years ago, that was kind of the, the second bone wars in my mind. You're familiar with the first bone wars, the Cope Marsh bone wars. The second bone wars happened bureaucratically or legislatively in the 1990s. There was a, a lot of fossil bills introduced to the House and the Senate by various names. I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called the Bacchus Bill or um, anything like that. But uh, right about the time that, that Sue, the T-Rex Sue, was kind of a political uh, story as well, there was this debate going on in the background about what about fossils on public lands. Now, they weren't talking about national parks. Everybody knew that national parks are set aside and they're off limits to that kind of activity. But that wasn't known with certainty on places like national grasslands or national forests or BLM land. And so there was one contingent of folks that wanted access to commercial collection on public lands. And there was another uh, faction of folks, dominantly professionals, that didn't want to see that happen. 
And so ultimately, that's the nature of the law that came out of that debate that happened in the 90s, largely. The Paleontological Resources Preservation Act of 2009 uh, disallows any kind of commercial collecting on public lands. It's all for research and educational purposes. Gotcha. And then you can do limited collection just for your own private collection. Absolutely. Yes. And that's the casual collecting part. Interesting. I didn't even know that existed. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And it really, it, it gets involved because the dynamics of that uh, casual collecting is limited to common invertebrate and plant fossils. Oh, interesting. So right away, we know that something like shark teeth is out, right? <laughs> shark tooth is a vertebrate. So anything vertebrate, bones, teeth, those are, by the nature of the language and the law, those are not available for casual collecting. Only common invertebrate and plant fossils. So I'll leave the rest. Uh, if you're interested sometime, that would be another discussion we could have. So that excludes all dinosaurs too then, just so Absolutely. everybody knows. <laughs> Absolutely. Excludes all dinosaurs and oreodonts and rhinos and birds and anything with bones. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining us. It was a really good discussion. And if you ever have a new exciting thing you want to talk about, we'd be happy to have you back. Thanks, Garrett. I really appreciate uh, your time. It was a lot of fun and hope to do it again. Great. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks again, Bruce, for an awesome interview. I, I'm sorry I wasn't able to be a part of that one, but it sounded like a really good conversation. Yeah, lots of good dinosaur tracks in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our Dinosaur of the Day, Displetosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube, so thank you. The name means Frightful Lizard. It was a tyrannosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Western North America. There's only one named species, Displetosaurus taurusus, and the species name means muscular or brawny in Latin. It was found in Alberta, and other potential species that still need to be described have been found in Alberta and Montana. It was discovered in 1921 in Alberta by Charles Mortram Sternberg, and it was thought to be a new Gorgosaurus species at the time. It was fully described in 1970 by Dale Russell, who then named it Displetosaurus. The type specimen is a partial skeleton that includes the skull, shoulder, one forelimb, pelvis, femur, vertebrae from the neck, torso, hip, and some tail vertebrae. Another specimen was found in 2001, and as I said, there's maybe two to three more species, but these haven't been named or properly described yet. 
Russell also classified a specimen that Barnum Brown had found in 1913 as Displetosaurus. It was found in Alberta. They found parts of the hind leg, pelvis, and some vertebrae. And Brown had also found a nearly complete skull in 1914. And 40 years later, the American Museum of Natural History sold it to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And there it was labeled Albertosaurus libertus, but eventually reassigned to Displetosaurus. Eight specimens have been found in Alberta in Dinosaur Park Formation. And... There may be a new species of Displeosaurus from one of the specimens based on differences in the skulls, but again, not formally described yet. In 2001, a partial skeleton was found in two medicine in Montana and assigned to Displeosaurus, though not of any particular species. Three other specimens have been found in two medicine and are Displeosaurus, also not yet assigned species. But there are seven known Displeosaurus torosus specimens. Displetosaurus is closely related to Tyrannosaurus. It's in the subfamily Tyrannosaurinae, along with Tarbosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, and Alioramus. And it's more closely related to T. rex than to Albertosaurus. Interesting. Yeah. Displetosaurus is actually 10 million years older than T. rex. So sometimes it's considered to be a direct ancestor to T. rex through anagensis, where one species evolves into another by evolutionary changes within a lineage. Gregory Paul had reclassified Displeosaurus tauruses to Tyrannosaurus tauruses at some point, but most people don't accept this. Some people think that Tarbosaurus and Tyrannosaurus are sister tacks of the same genus and that Displetosaurus is a more basal relative. One young Displetosaurus specimen found in Alberta has bite marks on its face from another Tyrannosaur, but, and these bite marks healed. There's another Displetosaurus, an adult from Alberta, that has Tyrannosaur bite marks on its face. Typical Tyrannosaur move, biting on faces. <laughs> well, these bites, they may have been from other species or from other Displetosaurus. I'm guessing other Displetosaurus. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, in 2009, a study found evidence of an infection similar to Trichomomus gallinae in a few Displetosaurus jaws that probably spread because of biting each other or eating animals that were infected. Yum. Yeah. I wonder if they tasted any different. Anyway. Not different enough. They kept eating them, apparently. Well, if you're hungry enough. <laughs> I guess so. You know. So these healed bite marks, they might show that they weren't meant to be fatal. And it was just part of interacting. Maybe one was asserting dominance. Or maybe the marks were from infection. So hard to say. One Displetosaurus specimen had post-mortem bites from a large theropod, possibly a Displetosaurus. This, in that case, would have been cannibalism. Displetosaurus had small forelimbs, though they were still proportionately longer than other tyrannosaurs. It could grow up to 26 to 30 feet or 8 to 9 meters long and weighed between 1.8 and 3.8 tons. It had a large skull, about 3.3 feet or 1 meter long, and it had heavy bones, and some bones, such as the nasal bones, were fused so that they'd be stronger, but they didn't have openings in the skull to reduce weight. Displetosaurus had crests around its eyes and tall oval eye sockets. It had an S-shaped neck and four-toed feet, but the first digit didn't touch the ground, and it had a long, heavy tail, and on its forelimbs it had two digits each. It grew around 400 pounds or 180 kilograms per year, about 10% of its adult weight. That is a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot of food. So if you're starving, you go for the infected. <laughs> it shows how fast they grew, too, because if they were going... 10% of their total weight a year early on. Yeah. It doesn't take many years to reach full size. That's true. Probably need to do that to keep surviving. Yep. So Displetosaurus had about 72 teeth that were long and oval, not blade-like. And they had the largest teeth of Tyrannosaurids. Wow. Yeah. They were an apex predator. They probably ate Centrosaurus, which is a Ceratopsid, and Hippocrosaurus, which is a Hadrosaur. 
Some places it coexisted with Gorgosaurus, but they may have inhabited different niches. Displetosaurus had stronger jaws than Gorgosaurus, but their teeth strength were similar. So maybe they didn't have different feeding styles or diet, it's hard to say. Also, there may have been some geographic separation, so Gorgosaurus may have been more common a little more north, Displetosaurus a little more south. Gorgosaurus may have eaten the Hadrosaurs, and maybe Displetosaurus went for the Ceratopsids, since Displetosaurus was more robust and maybe less common than Gorgosaurus, and Ceratopsids were harder to hunt. But there was one Displetosaurus found in two medicine that had a juvenile Hadrosaur in its gut, so can't, uh, can't argue with the gut contents. You can't. <laughs> Displetosaurs may have lived in groups based on a bone bed found in two medicine that includes three Displetosaurus, an adult, a juvenile, and intermediate, as well as five hadrosaurs, and they're buried at the same time in the same place. The hadrosaurs are scattered and they have bite marks, so Displetosaurus may have been eating them when they died, but it's unclear what killed the group. Curry said that Displetosaurus may have been a pack, but not everybody agrees with this. Brian Roach and Daniel Brinkman said Displetosaurus may have been like Komodo dragons where they mob carcasses and attack and kill each other while feeding. There's a study in 2015 that found evidence, you know, of Displetosaurus cannibalism I mentioned earlier. So maybe that's what happened here. Yeah, it's so hard to piece that out of the paleontology. Yeah. Whether they were hunting together or they just happened to find a carcass together. Yeah, exactly. It's also possible the hadrosaurs in the bone bed may have died from toxic gas and then were trapped, which would have attracted the displetosaurs, who also died from toxic gas. Or maybe they were killed by other predators fighting over food, or the hadrosaurs were killed and dragged away to a lair, although it's not clear why that would be the case. I like that one the best. That sounds kind of goofy, but yeah. just like a group of theropods dragging hadrosaurs off to like a cave somewhere to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> And our fun fact of the day, I think we've probably talked about before, but I don't know if I've explicitly said, is that synapomorphies are anatomical characteristics that are shared by a group of organisms, and autapomorphies are anatomical characteristics that are unique to a particular species. So synapomorphies will give you your tyrannosaurids, and autapomorphies will give you tyrannosaurus rex, for instance. So it's a pretty cool way to look at the differences between dinosaurs. And it's all about looking for characteristics like, say, the number of digits or how different limbs have different characteristics. And they can just be weird little simple bumps here and there or muscle attachment points. And the distinctions between whether or not those are shared by a group versus an individual is really how paleontology breaks down all these different taxa and the family trees. And then... They have this fancy software where you put in all these characteristics and it will weigh all the different factors and figure out which ones are likely to be synapomorphies versus autapomorphies and construct family trees based on all that information. So if you want to talk like a paleontologist, those are a couple of good words to use. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join one of our dinosaur groups, you know, Stegosaurus, Compi, whatever. T-Rex. <laughs> T-Rex, yeah. <laughs> then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.